Hi, my name is Michael Sano. I'm Jewish and I love Israel. So if you love Israel, if you love being Jewish, or if you have an unwavering connection to the land of Israel, then you're in the right place. Welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast. Shalom, shalom, shalom. Hey, what's going on? What's going on? What's going on? My name is Michael Sano, and welcome, welcome, welcome to the 12 Cities in Israel podcast, the only positive podcast about the food, the culture, the people, and the history of the state of Israel. Hey, if this is your first time watching, don't forget to hit the like button, the subscribe button, and the notification bell. And if you'd like to take us with you, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on Spotify. Actually, I think that's Google Podcasts now, so I might have to change that. But regardless, you can find me on all those places. And this episode is brought to you by the 12 Cities in Israel Modern Hebrew Flashcards. The best flashcards for learning Hebrew or brushing up. Um, We have two of them now. They're available on Amazon for Kindle. Um, They are the Aleph Bet in both print and script and the numbers, numbers in Hebrew. And uh, they're free if you have Kindle Unlimited. If you don't, they're $9.99. And they are beautiful, colorful, and they will definitely help you learn Hebrew. Um, more about that at the end of the episode. Okay, man. Hey, we, uh, guys, man, woman, whomever, everyone's welcome. Uh, <laughs> um, this episode, we're continuing our The 12 Cities in Israel uh, series with um, Herzliya. We've, what are the ones that we've gone over already? We've gone over Beersheba. We've gone over Ashkelon. Um, we've gone over, I think we've gone over another one, um, Akko, Acre, and, uh, now we're hitting on Herzliya. Now, Herzliya was interesting in the beginning because Herzliya came from a Moshav named after Theodore Herzl that was, well, I'm going to go into that. Um, but essentially at first glance, Herzliya has no history, but that's not entirely true. And I am going to give you all of the history that uh, Herzliya stands on. So um, let's start with uh, Herzliya, named after Theodore Herzl, the father of modern Zionism and the founder of the first Zionist Congress. It's a city on the central coast of Israel. It is a part of the greater Tel Aviv district. So it's in the north. um, And it's located just north of the city. Yay, I wrote that uh, in my notes. Sorry. (laughs) Um, As of 2019, it had a population of 97,470. And it is the home of some of Israel's most affluent neighborhoods, influential people, and groundbreaking businesses. We're all going to go, we're going to go over all of that in the modern city. Um, But there are two ancient sites um, in the area of modern day Herzliya, and they are Telmica, which dates back to the Bronze Age, and Apollonia, which dates back to um, the Achaemenid Empire, the Persians. Um, So let's start, we're going to start, see, I have two different areas 
and we're going to discuss those two different areas, how my thoughts on it at the end, but those two different um, archaeological sites are Telmikal and Apollonia. Um, and we're going to start with Telmikal. Now, going all the way back to the Bronze Age, um, the archaeological site of Telmikal was first settled towards the end of the Middle Bronze Age, which was roughly between 1800 and 1550 BCE, before Common Era. So this site goes pretty far back. Um, the earliest residents built on the high mound, so if Telmikala is this big, huge mound, um, they built a raised platform approximately 13 feet in height, and it was made of alternating layers of red clay and sand. And I had to look up that um, this abutment was all made of sand and they pushed these big sloping walls, made the, the slopes of the hill, the mound out of sand. Um, the structure was supported by a brick retaining wall and a gently sloping bank of sand, which I just mentioned. And it's thought that there were structures built on top of the platform, but none of those structures, um, remain or in in an archaeological sense none of them remain so it's supposed that they're up there um the site was approximately one and a half to three quarters of an acre at the time and found there were pottery cypriot imports and hyksos scarabs and egyptian alabaster vessels so we can we can already see right now um who the residents of Telmikal in the middle bronze age they were uh we can already see that they were trading with egypt um and it has been surmised that early Telmikal was a trading post that engaged with the hyksos dynasty uh dynasties of egypt and eventually uh this settlement was destroyed by an earthquake and what i'm curious about and i have to I have to speak to an archaeologist about it because in, in some cases the wall falls and everything, and you can tell that it wasn't, uh, through siege, but I'm curious how they know, um, if it was earthquake, I mean, is that just, well, if it wasn't this, it was that, I don't know. Um, maybe somebody knows and they can put it in the comments. Um, so during the late Bronze Age, which was 1550 to 1400 BCE, so the middle was 1800 to 1550, so 1550 to 1400 BCE, new settlers arrived at Telmikal, and they rebuilt it and expanded the high mound um, into the shape that it is seen today, in today. So the way Telmikal, when you go there, it's in the south of Herzliya, and you can actually see Tel Aviv from it. Um, the way it's shaped now was from those late Bronze Age settlers. Um, they also added a fort for protection uh, with settlements below it to the south. Now, the settlement, though, that one was also eventually destroyed, but it was resettled again between 1400 to 1200 BCE, but was abandoned in the 14th or the early 13th centuries. Now you'll notice Tell Me Call goes through this cycle of settlement abandonment, settlement abandonment, settlement abandonment. Um, it's kind of a recurring theme. 
wouldn't want to buy any property there. Or you would want to buy property there, but only as people were leaving, because then you can make a fortune when people move back. Peter Madeira, <laughs> this coffee is for you. I'm going to take a sip of coffee. Hold on just one sec. Um, all right, so let's move into the Iron Age. Um, Telmacal remained abandoned until the 10th century BCE, um, when it is thought that the Phoenicians arrived. Now, the Phoenicians were just north in Syria. Do you, did you know where the Phoenicians were? I didn't know um, until I started doing these cities and doing the history, so it's pretty exciting. Um, at the site have been found um, several wine presses, chalices, and pottery, and there was also a room uh, that was excavated that was used for religious practices. So there was some kind of temple there. Um, then in the 10th century BCE, Telmikal was once again abandoned. It was resettled once more and then abandoned again in the third century BCE. Now, then the Achaemenid empire came, the Persians, um, and during, well, they didn't actually come, but during the Persian period of the Achaemenid empire, well, no, they did, didn't they? I'm doing two cities or two sites, so a lot of it's getting confused in my head. I apologize. So read, read, read. During the Persian period of the Achaemenid Empire, 6th to 5th century BCE, Telmikal was once again settled and served as a trading post for both the Phoenicians to the north and the Persians. They are the Achaemenid Empire. Um, the site retained its fort for protection and multiple silos, cooking ovens, and ash pits were found at the site. Um, the fort appears to have been a military and administrative headquarters for the Persians in their region of Yehud Medinata. And that was the administrative name that the Achaemenid Empire gave to this area. Yehud, oh, what? So they recognized, bro, that's awesome. Sorry. Um, also, from this time, a cemetery was discovered with 120 graves of three distinct types, uh, cis burials, pit graves, and infant burials in storage jars. Pretty gross. Um, that's that's actually really sad. But uh, burial, burial, burial offerings, sorry, uh, have also been recovered at the site that include silver and bronze jewelry, as well as iron tools and pottery. So we're seeing um, we're seeing settlement that is maintaining some sort. See, I'm curious about that. I'm curious about veneration for the dead. So how long? Does, how far back does that go? I I'm, I know that tombs go way back to the ancient world. They go back to the uh, the Bronze Age pre that. Um, there are burial um, sites from ancient, ancient, ancient people, uh, Stone Age. But I'm curious as to how these developed and if they changed. And it's interesting that the the per this is the Persian period. So the, the Achaemenids were Zoroastrians. So I'm curious about the burial. 
You know what I mean? Who were these people? Who were the people who were here during this Persian period? So, all right, sorry, little ramble. Um, all right, so moving out of the Persian Achaemenid Empire, uh, let's move into the Hellenistic area with the Greeks. So Telmichal was populated during the reign of Alexander the Great, um, but was once again abandoned by the end of the fourth century BCE. So when Alexander the Great came through, what I'm saying is that there were people there at that time. And and Alexander's um, Mycenaean, Mycenaean? Macedonian Empire has a had a an influence on uh, on Telmichal. Now the site was resettled soon after, though, as forty seven silver tetradrachmans were found and dated to the reigns of Ptolemy the first through Ptolemy the third, showing it to have been inhabited sometime during the third century BCE. So again, settled, abandoned, then resettled. Um, there is also archaeological evidence showing activity from the time of the Seleucids, boo, in the second century BCE. Um, but this control was most likely ended during the Hasmonean reign of John Hyrcanus in 134 to 104 BCE. That was his reign. Um, during this time, a small fort stood on the high mound and coins from the Hasmonean ruler, Alexander Janaeus, have also been found verifying that Telmichal was most likely a part of what Josephus described as a defensive line of fortifications established by Janaeus along the Yarkon River. Um, now, the Romans then came after that, uh, after the Hasmoneans um, in about 10 to 50 CE, and they built a large fortress at Telmichal, which uh, at the center of its inner courtyard had a tall tower that people thought was a could have been a lighthouse. Um Coins have been recovered at the site from the reigns of Marcus, Ambibulus, Valerius Gratus, Pontius Pilate, and King Agrippa I, and it is the only fortress of its kind along Israel's Mediterranean coast. How cool is that? Um, the Roman fort is the most prominent feature of what are the remains of present-day Telmichal. Um, we're going to be finishing up Telmichal pretty soon because, as I said... Settled, abandoned, settled, abandoned. Now, next to come um, were, by the late Roman period, uh, Telmichal had fallen into decline. Remember I said abandoned? Uh, due to its proximity to the nearby city of Apollonia, which we're going to talk about in a moment. And for 700 years, the city was unoccupied. So, totally abandoned. Um, the last group of inhabitants uh, at the historical site of Tel Michal were the Third Islamic Caliphate, the Abbasids, uh, during the 8th and 9th centuries CE. Uh, there they built a small watchtower on top of the high mound, most likely as part of an early warning network uh, against enemy ships. And that is Tel Michal. Don't worry, we're not done. We're only halfway through this episode, but tell me, Kyle, you can go see it now. It's beautiful. It's really cool. 
Um, it's an archaeological site. People, but see, that's one of the cool things about Israel is you, you, you stick a shovel in the ground, <laughs> and you're going to come up with something historical. So I'm going to take another sip of coffee, um, and then we'll continue into Apollonia. Mm, perfect. Okay, so moving on out of Tel Michal, which is in the south, to Apollonia in the north, which is a national park. Uh, the site is a national park that's open to tourists. Um, it starts with the Persians, with the Achaemenid Empire. Um, it was settled during the Persian period, circa 500 BCE. Uh, Apollonia became a regional center. Uh, Apollonia became a regional center following the decline of neighboring Tel Michal. So. We're seeing a cycle. Tel Michal develops, grows, becomes a trading port. And then as it falls into decline, I don't understand why people didn't stay there. Um, maybe Apollonia had better a better harbor. I don't know. Um, but it is hypothesized it was most likely the main city and harbor for the region of the southern Sharon Plain in the mid-4th century BCE. It is mentioned in the Persepius. Am I saying that right? No. The Periplus, sorry, of Pseudo-Silax, which is a Greek manuscript that lists the landmarks and ports of the Mediterranean and Black Sea. So... The Greeks knew about Apollonia, uh, the name Apollonia. I'm pretty sure they probably did know about it. But what I'm saying is it got included on, this is like Michelin stars on a map. You know what I mean? This is a big deal. Um, so during the time, this moves us into the time of the Greeks when it was under the control of the Seleucids. And what's interesting is when I went and tried to find information about it, um, I couldn't find that much early information about Apollonia, um, but I can definitely, maybe I can even do an episode on Apollonia because it, it has a lot of history. As you're going to see, as we move into the Roman area of Apollonia, or the Roman era of Apollonia, and it was mentioned by both the historians, Pliny the Elder and Josephus, uh, during the time of the Romans, it was an important commercial and industrial center for the region that lay between the Poleg and the Yarkon rivers. I mentioned the Yarkon river again, um, but despite its importance, Apollonia did not have a coin mint, uh, meaning the town was not a Roman provincial center, but was instead regarded as just another medium sized coastal town. Uh, during the Roman period, Apollonia has been—it had been destroyed numerous times, uh, with the most notable being when Josephus tells us that Roman proconsul Garbinius found it in ruins in 57 BCE, and again when it was reported to be partially destroyed in approximately 113 CE by an earthquake. Both times, Apollonia was rebuilt. Um, it is mentioned in the tabula, I am going to slaughter this, Peutingeriana, which is a guide to the Roman road system. So another map, another map from the ancient world, first the Greeks, now the Romans, which placed 
which places it on the coastal road between Joppa or Jaffa, Yafo, um, and Kezaria. Also, its location and distance on the map seem to confirm that Arsuf and Apollonia are the same place. How cool is that? You take stuff from the ancient world in order to confirm a site in the modern world. That's fantabulous. Um, now, during the late Roman era, Apollonia's name was changed to Sozusa in Palestina and appears to have been a part of the Roman province of Palestina Prima. This is where we get the name Palestine. Um, it was given by the Romans and it was given in an effort to eradicate the Jews, the Israelites, to get rid of any, it, it, it was um, historical cleansing. That's what that's what they did. Not nice guys, the Romans. Now, um, this must have occurred before 449 because Bishop Baruchius signed a document for a the synod or church council called the Acts of the Robert Council of Ephesus with Sozusa in his title. So what I'm basically saying is when he signed this document, um, what's his name? Um, Baruchia signed this document. He used that name. So Susas, am I saying that right? Sozusa, Sozusa. That's not, e who came up with that name? Um, what, but he signed his, his name with that in his title, with the name of that city in his title in 449. So Byzantine geographers, Heracles and George of Cyprus also use the name, so Sousa in their geographical work. So it's starting, the name has been changed. Apollonia is gone. Um, in 614, so Sousa surrendered to the Shar Sharbaraz. <laughs> I uh, so much going on with words in Apollonia. It's really trying. Sharbaraz of the Sasanians or the Neo-Persian Empire during the Byzantine-Sasanian War of 602-629. So now, so Susa, uh has been conquered, basically, by the Sarsanians. Um, but that is about to change because in 640, so Susa fell to the Muslims and was renamed again Arsuf. So Apollonia, Sosuza, Arsuf, which is why finding it on the map directed them where Arsuf was. Now, this new name of Arsuf can be found on the maps of Arab geographers dating from the 10th century. Now, during the Muslim conquest, Sosuza was the home to members of the Samaritan community, but in 809, the Abbasids violently removed them from the city. They also reduced the size of the town and surrounded it with a fortified wall to protect it from the constant attacks from the sea by the Byzantines. Now, we are in the early Arab period and we will move into the Crusades. Dun, dun, dun. Now, during the First Crusade, Arsuf 
was sieged by Jeffrey de Bouillon, who failed to capture um, the fortified town. But in twelve or in eleven o two, after a siege by land and sea, captured it and allowed its inhabitants to withdraw to Ascalon, Ascalon, um, in the south. And following its capture. The Crusaders rebuilt the city's walls and created the lordship of Arsur in the kingdom of Jerusalem. They did this with um, Ashkelon too, um, and with Akko. Now, Arsuf was recaptured by the Muslims in 1187, but on September 7th, um, 1191, the town fell again to the Crusaders after Richard I of England and Saladin came together in the Battle of Arsuf. And in 1207, John of Ibelin, the Lord of Beirut, that's a thing, um, became <laughs> Lord of Arsuf, and his grandson, Belin of Arsuf, in 1241, built new walls for the town as well as a large castle, and he also built a new harbor. And in 1251, Louis IX of France rebuilt the wall's ramparts, and from 1261, the city was governed by the Knights Hospitaller. Now, ramparts are those, uh, they're the parts that stick up from the wall that you can look in between and shoot arrows and all that kind of stuff. Um, they're the uh, blocky part on the top of ancient medieval walls. Now, in 1265, the Mamluk Sultan Babars... Baibars, sorry. The Mamluk Sultan Baibars captured Arsuf after a siege that lasted for 40 days. After this victory, Baibars destroyed the town and either killed its remaining inhabitants or sold them off into slavery. He left Arsuf completely razed to the point that the site became completely abandoned. This is confirmed in the writings of the 14th century geographer Abul Feda, who wrote that the area was uninhabited. So here we have Tel Michal abandoned, and now Apollonia abandoned. Both destroyed, both abandoned. Um, now during the Ottoman era, Arsuf would continue to remain, so, but just in a smaller form, and in 1596, the Ottoman Empire recorded a village called Arsuf in their tax registers. It contained 22 families and four bachelors who were all Muslims. Um, Arsuf also appeared as a place named, are you ready for this? Village in the 1799 map, Carte de l'Egypte by Pierre Jacotin during Napoleon's French campaign in Egypt and Syria against the Ottomans. So there was inhabitation, but this is normal. If we look at Ashkelon, if we look at Akko, um, all of these coastal towns, there, is, there are villages that remain after these ancient cities, settlements uh, become destroyed and abandoned. Now, it was abandoned. It was gone. There was nothing there. They were now sites from the ancient eras. And the present city of Herzliya 
was founded in 1924 and it was named after Theodore Herzl and it was a moshav with a mixed population of new immigrants and Jewish veterans from World War One. Um, and in the first year, there were 101 houses, 35 cow sheds, because you have to count the cow sheds. Uh, <laughs> and and so there was this was the beginning of what was modern day Hertzlia. Um, and this flurry of construction led to continued growth for the community and a census by the British authorities conducted in 1931 showed that Herzliya had grown to a population of 1,217 inhabitants with 306 houses. And that, my friends, is the story of Herzliya. Talmichal, Apollonia, what was there, um, and how... It, it's actually, it's kind of a sad story. It's a tragic story because, you know, everything, uh, uh, the both of these places seem to have potential, but just can't catch a break. But in the modern city, which is going to be uh, our next episode of Hertzlia, you're going to find that things change dramatically. All right, that's it. Um, thanks a lot for watching this episode. I hope you appreciated it. It's fun giving you all of this history, um, but it is a lot of research and, and I hope you guys appreciate that. And I'm sure you do. Um, all right, hey, if you like this video, hit the like button, the subscribe button and the notification bell. Um, if you want to take it with you, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, TuneIn, and on Spotify. I'm going to have to remember that whole thing. Um, and as I said, um, this episode was brought to you by the 12 Cities in Israel Modern Hebrew Flashcards. Um, they are available on Amazon for Kindle. They are free for Kindle Unlimited and $9.99 if you want to buy them um, and have them as your own. And uh, yeah, they're a pleasure. So much fun to make. Um we're doing we have two of them now we have the alphabet and print and script we have numbers in hebrew and our next one coming out is body and clothing and basically what the uh what the idea behind it is is i'm doing everything within arm's length so if you can if you can express in hebrew all of the things directly around you um, it is the quickest way that you can, in my opinion, you can learn Hebrew. So I'm giving you those tools. Um, we're also, I have a phone call later on after this episode with a, an illustrator who is in Tel Aviv and we are working on a children's bedtime book called who is a Jew. Um, and I'll have more for you, uh, about that later. So, um, all right, that's it. Bye. Shut the lamp,
שליבי נתתי, הושטתי לפרח הנשאר.